Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Market Show. I'm Harriet Russell, the sectors editor at the magazine, filling in for John Human. I'm joined today by Megan Boxall, our podcast editor and resident healthcare reporter. Hello, Megan. Hi, Harriet. And also Julia Forshaw, who uh, is our travel and leisure expert. Hello, Julia. Hi, Harriet. We're going to be looking at all sorts of things. It's been a busy week and uh, the tail end of results have certainly kept us nice and busy. But uh, we're going to start with the biggest part of the news, which was the announcement by Whitbread that it has sold Costa Coffee to Coca-Cola. So, uh, Julia, let's start with the most obvious question, which is why does Coca-Cola want Costa Coffee? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a surprise move, but uh, Coca-Cola, they have such a large presence in cold drinks right now and really not any presence in hot drinks. So this was just quite a convenient way for them to sort of sweep right into that market without having to build it up themselves organically. Yeah, and it's arguably a trend, isn't it, across the market? We saw last year, I think it was JAB Holdings, which had owned a majority stake in Jimmy Choo, sold it to Michael Kors because they really wanted to pursue hot beverages. It's sort of seen as quite a booming end of that sector, isn't it? Yeah, JAB then bought uh, Pret-a-Manger to kind of fill that space for the hot beverages. Yeah, complimenting. But looking at Whitbread rather than Coca-Cola, I suppose it's quite an interesting turn of events because they have had activist shareholders on their board quite sort of vociferously asking for a breakup of that company for some time, haven't they? Yeah, management have done a bit of a 180 so far since the beginning of this year because they, at the beginning of the year, they started off saying that perhaps they would uh, look at Costa potentially being its own entity in the future. But the timing wasn't right because they're in the middle of expanding in China and they're in the middle of this three-year turnaround plan. So that uh, chief executive, Alison Britton, was saying that one day it's a possibility, but just the timing wasn't right. And then a couple of months later, Elliott Advisors bought up quite a big stake in Whitbread. And we're, we assume uh, we're putting the pressure on Miss Britton to kind of speed up that process a little bit. So a couple of months later, she said that they would consider a demerger at that point. And then at the following results, she said that the demerger was kind of on track and that the ball had started rolling. And so last week when they came out saying that they'd actually sold it entirely in cash, people were quite surprised. Yeah. And in terms of what it means for that business going forward, um, I mean, I used to cover the company before you. And even then, it was really a company of two halves because you obviously have Premier Inn, their hotel chain on one side of the business and Costa on the other. Um, so without Costa, is it just Premier Inn? Uh, primarily Premier Inn, yes. They've got within, they kind of have their own sort of restaurant and pubs business, but they're ones that operate within Premier Inn. So it kind of Uh, is sort of an all-encompassing entity now. but So they sold Costa for £3.9 billion, and the net proceeds about, which will be about £3.8 billion, uh, Alison said that the significant proportion of that will go towards uh, returns to shareholders, but then some of it will be used to pay down debt and fund this expansion of Premier Inn in the UK and Germany primarily. And in terms of that valuation, obviously, at face value, that sounds like a decent enough number. Um, what sort of work have we done to break down that valuation? Has it been a good transaction for Whitbread? Yeah, at this point, it looks like they got quite a good deal for it. So the $3.9 billion represents a premium of 16.4 times Costa's cash profits in the year to March 2018. And if you want to compare it to some peers, Starbucks is currently valued at 13 times enterprise value to cash profits. And the if you strip out kind of just Costa on its own from the last set of Ripwood results, uh, the implied valuation of Costa was nine times its cash profits based on its expected earnings for 2019. 
Okay. And so in terms of what we think about Whitbread shares now as they stand, what's our what's our sort of stance on what investors should do with them? Uh, we've had them on a buy tip for a while now. And yeah, this looks like a great deal. Shareholders are in for quite a cash windfall once this all goes through. And uh, I mean, you, Premier Inn, what's left over is doing quite well. It's already the UK's leading hotel brand in the UK by number of sites. And they have big expansion plans in Germany. And so we're still sticking with a buy. Okay. Uh, There's plenty of other stuff going on in the news this week. Alex Newman has looked at what's going on between BHP, Billiton and Solgold and also the largest share buyback in history at Shell. And Harriet Klarfeldt has also looked at the sudden departure of Chief Executive Stephen Kelly from Sage. But Megan, we are here to talk about this week's cover feature, which you've contributed to. Um, It's a fairly controversial topic. Cannabis. Um, Yeah. So perhaps you can summarise exactly what this feature has tried to tackle, because it's fair to say that it's a fairly broad market and, you know, pardon the pun, but it is a growing market as well. <laughs> so what what has uh, Neil Wilson and, and yourself sort of looked at between you? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of puns in uh, in this feature. You it's can't, right, you can't escape them. Can't escape them. <laughs> Even without meaning to, there's just there's just too many. Getting high off, uh, off the industry is <laughs> high returns, yeah. um, and that is what is this feature is about. Like this is a brand new market, really. The recreational use of cannabis is due to be legalised in Canada, which is one of the reasons Julia is here today because she is Canadian, a um, resident Canadian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. In the next few weeks, so that's completely revolutionised the market there. And um, as we were discussing earlier today, uh, Canada has actually. Um, allowed medicinal use of cannabis for a few years but now obviously the recreational market is so much bigger than that so this feature is all about how to get into this burgeoning market which is is almost brand new and uh, neil wilson has picked out a few of the of the top stocks many of which are listed in canada and in the u.s and then i've also looked at the medicinal side of things because the uk is due to legalize medicinal cannabis in october so that's it's just a very very exciting market yeah and in the u.s it's been approved for medicinal use sort of state by state hasn't it so there's an equal kind of opportunity growing out there as well um for companies based in london and sort of our readership have main access to what do you think are the sort of main opportunities or maybe the main growth drivers of the market well is that medicinal side for it for the uk investors for sure because that there is such high demand as we've seen it's been all over the media in the last few months the demand for medicinal cannabis is so high among so many different illnesses and there's been loads of evidence um, a lot of it's anecdotal evidence but it is it's still evidence and that- is it mainly in pain management or is there actual sort of um i suppose drug development going on around actual cures or actual medicinal effects and outcomes from using yeah yeah cannabinoids? so the two drugs that are currently uh, being sold in the UK. They're made by GW Pharma, which used to be listed here. And uh, one of them is for reducing the symptoms of epilepsy. So it's it's literally, it works by reducing the amount of seizures that, that people have. And um, yeah, so, so that is the first uh, medicinal cannabis drug, a, an actual pharmaceutical product, which has gone through all of the regulatory stages that all drugs have to go through. Uh, to have been approved but there are loads more companies which are doing similar sorts of things abvi is another one which actually has a drug on the market but it's a synthetic form of cannabis rather than actually the natural stuff and gw pharma their their products are they're literally like 
they grow the plants. And actually, we found out recently that the plants are actually grown by Associated British Foods, so which is another one of Julia's companies. So I mean, that is a slight angle into the market but I mean it makes up like none of its revenue. Cross-selling and cross-pollination yeah Yeah. it's an interesting question though about the growth particularly when you say about that company using sort of an artificial form of it because Mm -hmm. that suggests that it can become a lot more prolific a lot quicker you know growing actual physical plants demands space it demands a bit of time but you were mentioning this week around the office that actually it's incredibly easy to grow this stuff synthetically or in reality yeah apparently it's really easy i mean i can't say i've ever done it myself <laughs> not speaking it's, from personal yeah. experience but apparently it is really easy to grow cannabis apparently it's a really simple thing and that's what julie we were just talking about now in canada in canada there's a lot of people who are just growing cannabis after the regulations uh, officially come through in the autumn people will be allowed to have four plants up to a meter high each in their home yeah but the drug has already been decriminalized in canada to some extent um what where do the current sort of laws stand um at the moment i i'm pretty sure at the moment it's still legal like if i were to if i was caught with cannabis on me at any point but at, like from autumn it'll be that you each person is allowed to have up to 30 grams of dried cannabis on them. And you can have up to the, yeah, these one meter high four plants in your home. So interestingly, you're saying the law is going to change in the autumn, but obviously Canada is made up of sort of states or um, provinces, provinces which are not dissimilar to sort of the American state system. And they do they each have individual laws to as to how they're going to sort of deal with this issue going forward? Or is it sort of a more federal law that's going to be more top down? Uh, no, at federal level, they've just kind of said, provinces can do your own thing you can set all the rules but what's probably going to be sort of a blanket regulation is that it has to be plain packaging like you would get with cigarettes here and you have to have the health warnings on it you have to have the name of the producer name of the strain of marijuana the thc and cbd content on each of them and disclaimer about the health risks so so quite sort of similar to what you already get with buying cigarettes there yeah that's an interesting point actually because imperial tobacco um it's obviously a listed company here it's one of two big tobacco companies listed here and there's there's been a bit of rumor there hasn't there about whether they might be moving into that market yeah i mean at this point i i i think before when people would ask them hey are you gonna start investing in like specifically in producing complementary products or even perhaps growing your own it was sort of too soon to say yes mm-hmm. in that sense that it wasn't quite legal yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, for Imperial Brands, earlier this year, through their subsidiary, Imperial Brands Ventures, they bought a stake in Oxford Cannabinoid Technologies, and that focuses on the medical uses of cannabis. And they also, in June last year, appointed Simon, Simon Langlier to the board as a non-executive director. And he's the chairman of this company called Pharmacelio, which is a Canadian supplier of medical grade cam- cannabis and legal uh, for medical use. It's been legal since 2001 in Canada. Hmm, interesting. Definitely one to keep an eye on. Uh, Megan, just to finish with you then, what do you think are sort of the main ways that UK investors can start to get involved in this then? Well, there are three companies at the moment. They're, they're all actually listed on Next rather than either the main market or AIM. And they're, they're kind of investment vehicles. So all three of them have raised money, which they're then putting into various different companies sativa was the first one to list and that has put some money into canadian businesses uh, including one called veritas pharma which is actually quite it's it's quite a big company that's it's exclusively working in the medicinal side of things and then there's ananda developments which is operating a lot of its well its current investment is in israel which is a massive growing massively growing market that's where so much of the research which is another thing that i just didn't know there's so much research into cannabis in in israel which is really interesting and so yeah those are the 
the three current ways that you can get exposure to this market. But it was really interesting speaking to some people this week who are saying that there are loads of companies which are thinking of listing here in the UK now mm. that there's this market, which has come kind of out of nowhere. I mean, we've been talking about medicinal cannabis in the UK for a long time, but it's only been the last few months when there was all this publicity around the two young boys with, with epilepsy, which the government just suddenly snapped into action and have changed the regulation very, very quickly. So now there is this market which has appeared over the summer, really. Mm. And now there are apparently quite a few companies which are thinking about about listing here. And Canaccord has actually recently employed a head of cannabis investment. So they've done a lot of the IPOs for the um, for the listings in Canada and in the US. And the people I've spoken to have said that they seem to be positioning themselves as the go-to broker for, for cannabis IPOs in the UK as well. So we could be seeing a big boost onto the market in the next few months of of these companies. And, and then it'll be up to, well, well, we'll have to sort of see how the market reacts to them. And judging by GW Pharma, which was listed here for a lot of years, it did amazingly well before it cancelled its listing here and, and moved over to the US. Mm. That's an interesting point, though, just to mention uh, GW Pharma quickly, because um, I suppose what the government might want to start avoiding, and this is a topic we talk about in healthcare a lot, which is that is the UK really that hospitable to sort of groundbreaking healthcare mm. technology and development and research? And yeah. in the past, I think the answer has been a sort of rather shy no, because we see so many companies start life here and then quickly realise the market opportunity and also just the reception from capital markets in the US and take their brand and their research and their jobs, quite frankly, over there. So what do you think the government potentially has to lose with this project? I don't really know. I think it is an interesting point that uh, healthcare and sort of blue sky stories here maybe don't have the access to capital that the same companies do in the US. And it's something that I think the LSE is working to try and change. They, they do argue that the UK is just as good a market it's a it's a stock pickers market, yeah. Our aim is becoming more mature. There are more high quality companies on there, which should then attract more capital uh, to help these companies grow. And there have been some really big success stories, but yeah, I think it's just making sure those markets are mature, letting in letting the the quality companies list. And when I wrote another a different feature a few months ago about healthcare investing on healthcare on aim, the head of life sciences and technology at the LSE was saying that he'd really like to see some more mature companies come to market. So they need to raise money outside of, of the stock market before they come to the to, to AIM or the, or the main market. And and then that just, I don't know, it makes it less risk. Well, it, it de-risks less the profile, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So maybe that's, and the, the person I spoke to last week about this cannabis feature, that he was saying that some of the companies are list, that are thinking of listing in the UK are already listed in Europe. They're already well over 100 million market cap. They're, they're, they've got, products which are actually in the clinical stages of development so they're really interesting i mean it's still risky all healthcare is always going to be risky whether you're an astrazeneca or you're a gw farmer but it, it doesn't mean there isn't a massive opportunity for growth and it is it's a really really exciting market which mm. will, yeah it'll be interesting to see where it goes in the next next few months yeah definitely one to keep an eye on plenty more information in that feature let's talk about a healthcare market which is maybe uh not as exciting as it once was maybe that's an overstatement but uh you and i have teamed up this week to write the sector focus which is on animal health so moving away from human health uh we looked at it in sort of three parts didn't we 
Yes. So the three parts being retail, obviously your beat, and then pharmaceuticals, which is the part of the market which used to be very exciting, but has gone through quite a few changes and it's it's just struggled this year. And then the final part is the genetic side of things, which genetics across animals and humans is growing so quickly. And we had results from Genus today, which is a genetics animal genetics company and it's doing unbelievably well it's it's just a fantastic company in a hugely growing market yeah luckily i've just edited that result so uh, (laughs) i'm fairly up on it and obviously i used to cover it um many moons ago um it's an interesting company to me because they to sort of veer away from the sector focus for a second they are quite sort of um vulnerable to external challenges in their market aren't they yeah absolutely they any kind of animal disease pretty much anywhere in the world because they're a global company has some sort of impact on on them i mean i say any kind of animal they they are in the cow and pig space so for example this year they've been impacted by a a disease which it killed a lot of their boars in america and and that hurt revenues a little bit there they only reported one percent growth from the u.s which was not very good compared to their history there but i had a really interesting conversation with the chief executive today who was saying that actually in the long run disease can be really beneficial for genus in the short term yeah it will hurt their revenues in that year and this year they're expecting some slowdown in china because there's a there's a disease that's going about to go and hit china there but in the long run disease can be really beneficial because genus makes the makes the pigs and the cows which can which are resistant to disease so if there is disease, you you want disease resistant pigs and cows. So yeah, you want yeah, bionic yeah. cows exactly, and that's what <laughs> and that's what genus do. Interesting. Well, that result is online for people to read now. Um, but to come back to the sector focus, as you said, we looked at pharmaceuticals more generally. Decra also had results this week. Why don't you mm-hmm. fill us in on what's going on over there? Yeah, Decra's results were interesting. They weren't actually bad, but the share price reacted extremely badly. And a lot of that was to do with, I think, probably the fact that they, they're they talking about preparing for a hard Brexit and it was all kind of a little bit pie in the sky, like we may have to take some costs if we do leave Europe in a way that they don't want us to. But mm-hmm. the thing that was a little bit more concerning for me is that they've become quite reliant on a small number of veterinary practices who are the people who buy their products that their medicines for dogs and cats and the reason they're reliant on a fewer numbers because the consolidation in the veterinary practice market is ridiculous at the moment everyone is merging mars as in like mars bar recently bought uh, one of the biggest veterinary practices in the u.s uh, to, to complement its pedigree and whiskers products still and quite bizarre i'm just gonna put I it, know, out it is there. weird isn't it yeah. when when someone said mars i was thinking surely that's a different company but it's not it's mars, it's mars, <laughs> yeah. mars. i mean this is something that we've looked at across the commercial sector as well companies like cvs always mm-hmm. sort of tread that strange line between are they a retail company are they a healthcare company but obviously they also run veterinary practices in the yeah. uk they've spent an inordinate amount of money buying up other practices haven't they yeah they have i think it was 52 million pounds this year and when their results came out a few months ago the share price did not do well because of the concerns that they're having to 
pay a lot of money for these veterinary practices now. Consolidation is is so popular that veterinary practices have become extremely yeah. expensive. Higher price tags, higher valuations. Mm-hmm. And it's something we've seen at Pets at Home to mention my own beat briefly. Um, they too have a veterinary practice, which alongside the usual structural challenges in retail, which really need no, no further detail here, um, are starting to weaken as well. I mean, the working capital that they've had to put into those businesses to, to keep them as sort of buoyant and in a, in a very competitive market should not be ignored, even if supposedly the returns are still good. So mm. it'll definitely be an end of the market to look at. But for now, genetics kind of take the top spot, don't they? Yeah. And the UK's got two, genus included. The other one is Benchmark, and they are focused on the aquaculture or the fish farming market. And they... Do, it's a similar thing to genus, really. They create sort of super fish, which are resistant to disease. And I don't know, in my head, it, it kind of sounds like it's easier to do it in fish than it is to do it in pigs. Maybe it's not, but they have these massive farms in, in Norway. And I think they've got a manufacturing plant in Braintree, which is enormous. And they can Chile? Just, Were they also in Chile? They operate in Chile. They have quite a lot of sales in Chile. I'm not sure yeah. if they've actually got operations there but they definitely have got business there but they're a global they're a global company as well they've there's demand all over the world for for these sort of super fish which (laughs) which uh which are resistant to disease and they breed faster and they're higher quality as well and yeah it's a huge opportunity for them they're just sort of ticking towards the the proper corporate like we are a big business we're ready to go they've been in the sort of the r&d phase Mm. for a long time and now they're just tipping over to the we're nearly in profits and and it's really it's a really exciting time to be looking at benchmark we've got them on a buy tip okay interesting and it's certainly hopefully an end of the market that will be supported by underlying trends basic underlying trends like population growth we need to feed more people we need more animals to feed them with Mm -hmm. sorry to the vegetarians and (laughs) vegans out there but you know those those are the sort of supportive trends that we're gonna basically be banking on aren't Mm -hmm. we and that's especially true in the fish farming market because that kind of isn't really a farmer's market at the moment it's been very much sort of dredging the oceans and as most people know we're getting to a stage now where you can't dredge the oceans anymore Mm -hmm. we're running out of fish so it's turning into more what we've seen on land and and historically we always used to take cows off the plains but I mean we haven't done that for years it's all herds and Mm -hmm. the same is happening in the fish farming market now it's not so much fishing them it's it's literally growing them them. for feed yeah Mm, in in these big farms which are all over the world a breeding market, indeed. Certainly one to read more about in this week's mag. We've uh, we've tried to look at it from all angles, but suffice to say, it's a much more complicated picture for animal health than ever before. That's pretty much all we have time for this week. Thank you, Megan, and thank you, Julia. There's plenty more on offer in the magazine, including a brand new column from Phil Oakley, who uh, some listeners will have been formally introduced to on last week's show. This week, he's asking, are quality shares overvalued and are they still worth coughing up for? for also got Property Matters from Jonas Crosland. He's looking at the consequences of higher taxes across the sector. And John Barron is asking why investment trusts seem to want to up their exposure to domestic equities during the Brexit negotiations. So that's all. 490, all good news agents. Join us again next week. Goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 